This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, we are here to serve. Like the butler Eugene Allen or his cinematic doppelganger Cecil Gaines, we understand what your Saturdays listening to satellite radio are all about. You want to be served like a tall, cold glass of lemonade brought forth on a silver platter, a linen napkin placed just so, a spoon set by its side on the resolute desk of the Oval Office. Or maybe you're in Washington, D.C. on a hot August day, this podcast playing in your ear, and you're chaperoning a school class to the White House for a tour of a lifetime. The executive mansion designed by James Hoban and built in large part by slave labor between 1792 and 1800, staffed in large part for the last two centuries by African-American servants and now lived in for the last four years plus by the first African-American president. If you're on one of those tours, and I saw hundreds of those tours coming through during my five years on the White House staff, you might be greeted by one of those butlers offering the same courtesy he would a president a tray of freshly baked cookies from the kitchen down below, held for your taking by a man who knows his role is to do his job without being noticed. You might not notice him, only the cookies, but you should say thank you just the same. As I said, we are here to serve. You don't have to say thank you. You just enjoy the show, and a very special show it is. This week, on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's March on Washington, in a minute, Will Haygood of The Washington Post will be with us. Will is the author of The Butler, A Witness to History, available now in bookstores, and also the original 2008 Post article, A Butler Well Served by This Election, that inspired the film Lee Daniels' The Butler which, on its first week of release, earned $25 million at the box office, quite a tally for an article that you might once thought of as simply a really nice companion to the coverage of the election of Barack Obama that happened just a few days before Haygood's piece went to print. And then, how do you bring that simple story to screen? You start with the vision of a producer, the late Laura Ziskin, and raise enough money to meet the big budget of a period epic spanning 50 years. But crucially, you need a writer with the chops to pull it off, and we'll have that writer, Danny Strong, in studio. For viewers of a certain age, Danny is an actor of great renown, with recurring roles in Clueless, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Gilmore Girls. But to me, he is a writer, a multi-Emmy award-winning screenwriter of the most important stories of the presidency and those who seek it, and now, those who serve it. Recount, Game Change, and in theaters, Lee Daniels' The Butler. But first, let's go back to the original idea. The inspiration and the reporter who first put it on the pages of the Washington Post, Will Haygood. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, Well, Will, one week in, you've seen the box office tally, and I'm sure you've connected with so many people who have been connected with your story since 2008. What's it like now to see it being seen by millions of people in theaters? Oh, very, very, very special. I mean, and I really give credit to the filmmaker Lee Daniels and the uh, screenwriter, um, the wonderful Danny Strong. Uh, uh, um, I just think that they had a vision uh, for the movie, and they gathered an astonishing cast, and it's so um, sweet tender and awe-inspiring to see crowds flock 
anniversary of uh, the death of Medgar Evers, the murder of the uh, three civil rights workers in Mississippi, the bombing of the four girls at the Birmingham Church in Alabama, and, of course, the March on Washington. Let's hear a little bit from the movie as as it is in theaters now, the scene in which Cecil Gaines gets the job at the White House and he's congratulated by his wife, uh, played by Oprah Winfrey. That's how you do it. You know how to throw Same a bag. What did you do to this potato salad? i tell you what I did. I put some dill in it because I read in Woman's Day where pickles drown out the flavor and dill bring up the flavor. That's what you're tasting oh, right now. Okay. Yeah, I like it. Girl, you must be so proud of Cecil. You know he got that job himself. The White House called him. He didn't call the White House. I want to hear all the stories. I don't know how many stories you're going to hear, because they done swore him to some kind of secret code, and he can't tell me nothing. Oh, no, 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 no. Vera, you give it to him right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Will Haygood, you talk in one of the pieces that you wrote as a companion to the release of the film about actually going down to New Orleans to watch the filming of this. You talk about Charles Allen, uh, Eugene Allen's son, and his take on whether and how Forrest Whitaker and Oprah Winfrey captured the roles of their parents. How closely does what Forrest and Oprah did on screen mimic the Eugene and Helene Allen that you met in Northwest D.C. First, for the first time? Uh, well, uh, of course, when I met them, they were um, both uh, up in years um, in their late 80s. And, um, and I really think that Forrest and uh, Miss Winfrey has captured the essence of this uh, longtime married couple um, in um, in the decades that they lived through in Washington with all of the uh, upheaval that was going on in and out of the White House, um, and uh, especially with the soft. Virginia accent, um, uh, Mr. Allen, I think Forrest got that uh, uh, very, very, very well. And it really was quite astonishing to to see the both of them inhabit uh, uh, this wonderful couple. Tell us about the gestation of this uh, film, Will Haygood, from your first meeting with Laura Ziskind uh, in 2010, uh, I believe it was, and then uh, the struggle to get it made, Miss Ziskind's own unfortunate demise, and then finally you being able to go down to New Orleans with Lee Daniels and his crew and watch this this incredible story getting put to the screen. Yes, when I wrote the uh, story in the Washington Post, there were... Um immediately many movie um, movie producers who got in touch with me and uh, uh, Laura Ziskin uh, came to Washington to see me uh, with Pam Williams um, uh, who had uh, worked alongside Laura Ziskin for many years uh, two very astute um, Hollywood pros and uh, they told me that uh, they were very intent on making this movie they they knew the backdrop of many civil rights movies um, had upset uh, many African Americans because it seemed that the camera always turned uh, upon the white characters. Now, we do know that there were many uh, white heroes in the civil rights movement, but a movie, say, like Mississippi, 
burning. Um, it tended to shift uh, uh, the glare away from the uh, foot soldiers, the civil rights people, uh, and furthermore, um, the FBI was not as active in Mississippi. History shows this, as they certainly could have been. Uh, but eventually, um, uh, Laura Ziskin uh, hired uh, Danny Strong, who uh, uh, who wrote a hell of a script. He spent a lot of time. Uh, he met Mr. Allen. Uh, he uh, uh, he made trips to the White House, um, and uh, I think his script uh, brought many, 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 many people to tears. It's just an astonishing piece of work. And with that script, a lot of actors actors go on scripts, of course. You know that's their jumping off point, and so that script att- attracted major talent like Cuba Gooding, Terrence Howard, Mariah Carey, James Fonda, Robin Williams, James Marsden, Minka Kelly, Oprah Winfrey, Forrest Whitaker. And last summer, um, uh, we all um, met down in New Orleans and started filming the movie. And you know. As you're filming, one never knows how it's going to look on screen, but uh, there was a lot of hard work. Um, actors, you know, this is very common knowledge, love working with Lee Daniels. Uh, he's an actor's magnet, and I think that that coupled with the script um, made everybody feel good. Plus, it's rare to uh, make a civil rights movie in this nation, because ultimately any civil rights movie becomes a movie about America. It becomes a genuinely quintessential American movie. It's it's one of the great moral periods of our time. Um, uh, 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 Other than the Civil War, this is the most studied period in our history, and, and and I think people are just fascinated by it, and I think people want to see it. I, I think, yes, yeah, some of the scenes are tough to watch. Dogs attacking children, mobs throwing torches at a bus. Uh, all that's very painful, but it's a part of our history. And you had this butler in the White House uh, who felt the echoes and the ripples of, of so much of it. He was in the White House uh, when the echoes of the Emmett Till uh, murder uh, reached the Eisenhower administration. He was in the White House when the echoes of the three missing civil rights workers reached the White House, when James Meredith's integrated old Miss reached the White House, uh, Sputnik, the Cold War, the Vietnam War. Um, it's an amazing sweep of history that he experienced, that he was a witness to. Two of the actors that were in this amazing cast that you didn't mention in the litany that you just uh, uh, listed for us included uh, Lee Schreiber as Lyndon Johnson uh, and Alan Rickman as as Ronald Reagan. And I love the anecdote that you have of Rickman as he's on the set with you and you uh, make your acquaintance with him and you explain that you were the origin of the story for this. In an almost like full character for Reagan, Rickman says, oh, what was it like uh, with with people like Rickman and, and Shriver as they were trying to uh, play these presidents? Um, it was sort of intimidating in a way because 
you could tell that the people who were playing the presidents, that they uh, realized that they had a, a heavy burden to bear. Uh, these are figures, Ronald Reagan, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who we can see every day on newsreel footage. And so if you're an actor and you're playing one of those roles, I think you really, really, really want to get it right. And so um, they were always uh, extraordinarily serious. I mean, for the simple fact you're playing iconic figures and you know people are definitely going to be judging you. Um, uh, but it was wonderful to see them bring these figures to life, it, um, uh, especially juxtaposed with the man in the shadows, uh, the figure in the shadows, um, the butler. Uh, and in the end, to me, it's all sort of um, spiritual in a way. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said if you're going to be a shoe shine man, be the best shoe shine man you can be. If you're going to be a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper you can be. Eugene Allen, unequivocally, because he rose to be the head butler at the White House, worked hard over 34 years, never missing a day of work, to be the best butler that he could be. And I think there was genuine love for this man in the White House. Um, now, there's no doubt about it that he loved his country more than his country sometimes loved him during the era of segregation. You know, uh, he didn't have full citizenship, uh, but he went to work every day. He loved the American flag. He saluted the flag. He cared about the first families. Uh, he was uh, he was vested, invested, invested in his country uh, on a very deep level. I want to hear a little bit from Eugene Allen. This was a narrative that he offered uh, at the annual Folklore and Folklife Festival that the Smithsonian puts on in Washington, D.C. every summer. He must have come at a couple different spots because I saw a few different video clips. I want to hear one from 1992, uh, what it was like as administrations went from one administration to the next. Because I've seen the time that uh, certain things we've done in one administration and boy, they thought it was wrong. We shouldn't ever do it. And another administration would come in and it was perfectly all right for, say, the Eisenhower administration. When we had state dinners or any dinner, Ms. Eisenhower forbid us to pick up plates until everybody was through eating. Mm -hmm. And she would sit there and look. And, uh, and if we did, we would, she would tell us about it. Mm -hmm. and, so we learned and we decided that we, we would not pick up a plate until everybody was through. So then uh, the next administration come in and sometime they would want to rush them. I can recall once that uh, President Johnson t told me, he says, why don't you pick up? I said, Mr. President, your guests haven't finished eating. And he said, well, if you start picking up, they'd rush and get through. <laughs> Well, hey, good. How did you come across Eugene Allen in the first place? Uh, I was, uh, and I was on the campaign trail uh, with uh, Senator Obama in 2008. I was at a rally in North Carolina. After the rally, I saw uh, three young ladies 
they were crying. I asked them if there was anything I could do. They had obviously been inside listening to Obama. They said their fathers had stopped talking to them because they were supporting this African-American candidate. Uh, they were defying their daddies because they were judging this candidate by the content of his character as Dr. King admonished everybody and not the color of his skin. I thought that was very powerful. With that, I told myself that very night in my hotel room that Obama was going to win. I just felt it. It just, I mean, if that sentiment went from farm to farm to county to county, state to state, I just thought he was going to win. And with that, I said to myself, I want to find somebody who worked in the White House during the era of brutal segregation in this country in the 40s or the 50s much of the 60s, because I thought their story, bracketed with Obama's win, would be pretty special. Even though Hillary Clinton was still in the race and Obama was down maybe seven or eight points. And so I set about finding uh, this figure, this ghost. And after many, many phone calls all around the country, somebody told me that there was a gentleman in Washington, D.C., they thought, actually, they thought he was either in Maryland, Virginia, or Washington, and they thought he had worked for three presidential administrations. After 57 phone calls, a gentleman answered the phone. I said, uh, I'm looking for Mr. Eugene Allen, who used to work at the White House, and uh, I understand he worked for three presidents. And he said, well, you are speaking to Eugene Allen, uh, and I did work at the White House, but actually I worked for eight presidents, Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan. It was pretty astonishing. And uh, and then shortly thereafter, I found myself sitting in the living room with him and his wife, Helene. Um, they'd been married 65 years, and when they felt very comfortable with me, he took me down this basement. It was dark. He got to the center of it switched on the light, and it was like I was uh, suddenly transported through some kind of magical curtain, because when the lights came on, I saw these amazing pictures of Mr. Allen and, and President Truman, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, and President Johnson, uh, beautifully framed, uh, and there were letters from the presidents and the first ladies to him at different points in his life. There were gifts from the presidents. Uh, there were some of the most gorgeous photo albums that I have ever seen in my life. Uh, they were White House photographs, and it was like being dropped into a room at the Smithsonian. Uh, this was both a homage to him and a homage to his country and to the presidents that he served. I had never heard of this man, and yet here he was standing right there. And he told me... Uh, he said, well, if you think my life is worthy, uh, you'll be the first to write a long story about me. It was a very touching moment. I actually welled up when he said that. You know, it's in a city so full of stories, so full of stories about the present and the past, uh, so dominated, in fact, by white men who worked in presidential administrations and on Capitol Hill it is just astonishing to think about that amazing story that was sitting in Northwest all this time and needed Will Haygood to find it and tell it. 
the story ends, your, your original story ends in such a profound way. I want to hear just a clip uh, of, of election night, November 4th, 2008, President Obama, President-elect Obama at that point in Chicago. This is our moment. This is our time to put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids, to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. So, Will Haygood, your story ends in a very profound way because you talk about the anticipation that Eugene and Helene had of being able to vote for the first African-American president, and yet only one member of the family was able to do so. Yes, his, uh, their son came over to their house on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, their son Charles, and their mother, uh, his mother, Helene, met him at the door, and she said, Charles, I'm so happy. My goodness, I'm happy. And he said, Mama, why? What's happened? Have you hit the lottery or something? And she said, no, no, no. She said, I'm, uh, I'm just happy. A writer is getting ready to write a story about my Eugene, about his 34 years of service at the White House, your father. She said, I'm so at peace now. I thought nobody was ever going to do this story, but I'm so at peace now. And there were a few other people over, and she looked at them, and she said, hey, everybody, I'm going upstairs, and I'm going to bed now. And uh, Sunday, she went upstairs, she went to bed, and she died in her sleep the day before the election of the nation's first African-American president. He willed himself to go to the polls the next day alone, and he cast his vote. And soon thereafter, something very beautiful happened. Uh, he, actually him and his son and myself, received uh, VIP invitations to the January 20th, 2009 swearing-in of the president. And he and I went, and his son and his daughter-in-law. And as uh, we were sitting there, uh, and Mr. Allen watched the watched the president-elect take the oath of office. He leaned over to me and he said, when I was in the White House, you couldn't even dream that you could dream of a moment like this. And tears were rolling down his face. Eugene Allen lived about another year and a half, I guess, from that day. Uh, Will Haygood, uh, and your relationship with him uh, blossomed, I think, in a very profound way because... So much of the feedback from your article uh, was were things that you were able to share with him one to one, right? Yes, uh, the story was reprinted in newspapers all around the world, and uh, school teachers, I guess, encouraged their children, uh, their students, to write him a letter, and so they wrote him letters uh, via me at the Washington Post newsroom. And so, about once a week, I would take these sackfuls of letters over to him, and. He would read them. He would put on his reading glasses, and he would read one, and I would read one, and we would go back and forth until it got late. It was very beautiful. He would say, "Woohoo! here's one from Sydney, Australia. Wow. He said, oh, my goodness, here's a, 
Here's one from Paris, France. My, my, my. He was so touched by that. I mean, it was it was very charming. Amazing. I want to hear one more clip because it has been a very important year for uh, films about the civil rights struggle and about the history of race in America. This is from 42 earlier this year. I think they all they want. We're just here to play ball. It's just a bunch of crackpots still fighting the Civil War. Well, hell, we'd have won that son of a gun if the corn stalks would have held out. We just ran out of ammunition. Better luck next time, Pee Wee. Ain't gonna be a next time, Jax. All we got's right here. Thank you, Jax. What are you thanking me for? I got family out there from Louisville. I need them to know. I need them to know who I am. Hey, number one! You playing ball or socializing? Playing ball, Lock. Play ball! Playing ball. Maybe tomorrow we'll all wear 42. That way they won't tell us apart. Will Haygood, a major character in 42 this year was that of um, of Wendell Smith, the African-American sports writer who uh, spent so much time with Jackie Robinson in his first years of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And if you think about it, maybe that uh, the role of Lee Daniels and even of yourself as a story t- as storytellers uh, puts a huge burden or gives a great opportunity to an African-American sports writer 50 years ago or uh, an African-American reporter today. What's the, what's the opportunity and the burden that you carry as uh, a writer for the Washington Post and bringing this story to so many millions of eyes? Oh, I don't know if it's a burden. It's actually a joy. I mean, uh, my mission, you know, as per my editors, is, you know, just to always be uh, um, uh, 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 alert the story ideas, story possibilities, and I think all of us as journalists um, uh, do that. Uh, My grandparents and my mother from Selma, Alabama, that civil rights-soaked city. So I don't know, maybe I have an extra antenna, maybe, for, for history or things that have erupted in the South, um, and so uh, when I found this man who was born in 1919 on a Virginia plantation and came from a very fractured family, uh, um, it spoke to me in deep, deep ways, and and it was a story that I knew I wanted to. To tell, even though after the death of after the sudden death of his wife, I was so stunned by that that I did not know if I could keep on and and uh, follow through and write this story. It sort of lost some momentum in my heart because I knew how much Mr. Allen was over there hurting with his with his beloved wife of 65 years suddenly uh, gone from the lock of his eyes. And that was 
very painful. Uh, uh, but I forged ahead and uh, and and wrote this story, and uh, I'm so glad I did because I think um, I think it's great that America knows about him and knows about his life, even though the character has a different name in the movie. You know, it, you know, uh, the Forrest Whitaker character is a, a figure inspired by Mr. Allen's uh, life in times, both his life and times. Well, Will Haygood, author of the original story that inspired Lee Daniels' The Butler, and now author of The Butler, A Witness to History. Right, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you so much for giving us this idea of who Eugene Allen really was. Thanks so much for joining us in Polyoptics. Thank you so much. With our conversation with Will Haygood as context, after the break, Danny Strong, the screenwriter of Lee Daniels, The Butler. People of the United States, this is POTUS. We're back on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124. I'm Josh King, and I'm joined now in studio by the screenwriter of Lee Daniels' The Butler, Danny Strong, a guy whose career I have followed from his time as an actor, which probably continues now with uh, we'll see in the final season of Mad Men, to uh, the amazing portfolio of work that he's done with Recount, Game Change, and now this film, which I had the opportunity to see. Congratulations, Danny. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. What's been the reaction now that we are uh, a few days after release? We've got the first weekend of box to look at, 25 million plus. How are things going? Yeah, we are through the roof elated. We can't believe how well the film has been received at the box office. You know, our hope was if it made 15 million, those were the projections by the studio. Uh, If it hit 20, that would have been a huge victory for us. But to hit 25 is certainly beyond our expectations, and it makes it a certifiable hit movie in studio terms because the budget of the film was roughly $25 million. So we made back the budget in the opening weekend. And what's so gratifying about that is because it was so difficult to get the movie financed, so impossible to get it financed. We got passed on by so many people. Literally every um, financing avenue stream in Hollywood passed on it, and they all loved the script. We had an Academy Award-nominated director, Lee Daniels. We had an amazing cast lined up, but they still wouldn't finance it because people don't want to finance uh, historical adult dramas. And so when the film is so well received, not just critically, but more importantly for the sake of Hollywood at the box office, it just goes to show that these films can do well, that there is not just an appetite for this kind of movie, but a big appetite for this kind of movie. And so people going to see it was not just a victory for the film, but for dramas in general. So huge credit, of course, to the passion and inspiration of Laura Ziskin to begin this project and for the Weinstein Company to bring it to fruition. Yeah, well, the the Weinstein Company came on board after it went into production. It was financed by um, independent financiers, and um, they put up a lot of courage and a lot of bravery. These are people that don't invest in movies. I think we have something like 27 people that put money into the movie because they were just so passionate about this kind of story being told. And, you know, Harvey Weinstein came in uh, and picked up the film in distribution and has been the biggest maestro I've ever seen. The man's just a genius at this. And he really, once the film got going, he saw the potential in this and has delivered it 
beyond mine and Lee Daniels sort of wildest expectations to have a release like this with this kind of ad campaign, this amazing ad campaign. It's, it's been wonderful. But yes, of course, the, the credit all, it all starts with Laura Ziskin, our beloved, like great producer. She was a real legend in the business. And she was so passionate about getting this movie made that she put in her will um, enough money to keep her company open so that the Pam Williams, who took the company over for her, who was her partner, her business partner before that, would have enough money to be able to get the movie made so the company could stay open so that Pam could go find the financing and get the movie made. Just a really beautiful gesture, and the film is dedicated to her. You've expressed some frustration, I think, with the uh, torturous name of the film, Lee Daniels, and I'm not sure whether there should be an S after the apostrophe for proper English, Butler, but maybe some others have commented that this was Harvey's way of ginning up some early controversy and some chatter about the film before the actual television campaign began. Well, I don't think Harvey uh, set out to do this before it happened to gin up publicity. I don't think it was some Machiavellian thing that he thought up. I think he, what he did was he took a very bad situation, which was that the MPAA ruled against him to be able to use the title The Butler and he took lemons and he made as much lemonade as I think I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, like I, I just go back to the word maestro, just watching him maneuver and work and to take the situation that was very frustrating in which six weeks before we open, we're being told we can't use the title The Butler because of this 1916 short film. Now, granted, Warner Brothers did own the rights to that title according to the rules of the MPAA. It wasn't as if they were doing anything illegal within the procedures of how this works, how studios decide uh, how they protect titles that they control. And Warner Brothers did protect this title. I was just uh, disappointed that in the end we didn't get to keep the title because I, I, you know, clearly there was a lot of studio politics going on. It was felt like it was more like Titans versus Titans than having anything to do with protecting the sanctity of the 1916 short film, The Butler, which I'm sure is beloved by all your listeners. Well, there are 25 million reasons why it probably doesn't matter that much now a week into release. I want to hear a couple clips from the movie as we continue our conversation. Let's start with one about the camaraderie that we experience between butlers as uh, Cecil Gaines walks into the White House to meet uh, two of his colleagues for the first time. Hey, there he is. Heard you were coming. What's your name, my brother? Cecil Gaines. Cecil Gaines. Thanks, buddy. Well, I'm Carter Wilson. Head butler. Don't worry about Big Mo behind you. That brother's D. Wallet before you even knew it. This brother in the mirror over here, his name's James Holloway. He's my second in command. Jay? Jackie Robinson and William Mays. Why don't you shake the man's hand first before you start asking difficult questions like that? I just want to know where the man's coming from. Looks like the jury's still out on that one, right? Amazing cast and also throughout the hours of the movie, Danny Strong, an amazing reference to so much of the sweep of American history. And as I was talking to Will Haygood earlier, it's not like you were dealing with a full book or novel or even a really long Vanity Fair piece to give you the context with which to write this film. You've got, you know, a longish style section piece uh, with which to start working. How do you, Danny Strong, begin to assemble all the historical facts that are needed to make this the movie that it is and as accurate as it is? Sure. Well, it was extremely complicated and difficult to do. Will Haygood's profile in Eugene Allen was a very, very beautiful profile that really captured the nation's attention and I think the international uh, readership attention. I mean, that story went as wide as a story could go, but it wasn't necessarily a blueprint for a screenplay. It was a wonderful idea for a screenplay. And when Laura Ziskin brought the article to me, I, I had to 
I had to just ask myself, okay, so how do I do this? How, how do you do this? And, and, and I originally told her, I don't even know if it can be done. I just knew that there was something really special here and I had to try. So the first major breakthrough for me was deciding that it was gonna be the story of the civil rights movement. That, that that's what I was gonna deal with as we jumped from administration to administration and that the key moments of the civil rights movement were what were gonna be the spine of the film. It seems very logical now that the movie's been made that, well, of course, you're just gonna do that. But when I'm just handed an article about a White House butler, it could be anything. We could have made the whole movie about one administration. We could have made it just about, you know, LBJ and the butler, um, which, by the way, the, may be a good movie because mm -hmm. so many other uh, traumatic, dramatic events happened during those years. But regardless, I thought to fulfill the potential of this concept, I wanted to cover this massive sweep of history. Uh, centering it on the civil rights movement was the first big breakthrough. And then the second big breakthrough was as I was researching the civil rights movement and I was researching the sit-ins and the Freedom Riders and Selma, I thought, wow, this is just amazing. These events are amazing. How can we get out of the White House and be there? I want to be able to be there. And then it hit me, well, what if the butler had a son who was a civil rights activist? I had interviewed several people that had worked at the White House. I had heard stories about relatives that were involved in the civil rights movement. And it became clear to us very early on that we weren't going to tell the Eugene Allen story beat for beat, that we were going to create a composite character that was based upon many different butlers and many different uh, housemen, ushers, and from different memoirs I'd read about people that had worked at the White House. So that was sort of the big breakthrough was, okay, so this is gonna be A, a composite character, um, and it's going to be a father-son story about a White House butler whose son, who's a civil rights activist, and the presidents that are dealing with the crises that the butler's son is in the middle of. And it created this really neat triangle that stayed dramatic all the way through. So that was, that, that was the approach. So, you know, is this movie word for word the factual account of Eugene Allen? Absolutely not. And we're, we never claim it is. That's why we changed the name from Eugene Allen to Cecil Gaines. The Gaines family is a composite character. But by doing that, I felt like it would tell a story that had more of a universal truth for not just the experiences of the staff that worked at the White House during these tumultuous periods, but of America itself. The idea that this would be the story of America, the story of the civil rights movement from Eisenhower to Obama. And in fact, it's really pre-Eisenhower. It starts with him as a boy working on the cotton fields. Oh, man, it just knocks you flat on your back within a minute of film time. Absolutely. And the, and the guy, why I wanted to start that there is I wanted it to look like slavery so that it would feel like slavery to Obama, the story of the civil rights movement, because in many ways... Uh, working in a farm in the 1920s in some ways was worse than it was during slavery because there was a sense of lawlessness going on at that time. Did where you have African a fact Americans... that looked like that first scene? Uh, the history of the entire era. I mean, the, the number of African Americans that were just brutally murdered, lynched, killed during that time period, basically from Reconstruction through the 1930s, it was it was just a terrible time in history for African Americans in the South, and uh, for me that scene perfectly dramatized the trauma and the horror of what it was like during that period. Let's uh, skip ahead and drop sort of into the middle of the presidents that are depicted in Lee Daniels, the Butler. I want to hear of C Cecil Gaines as he uh, was uh, talking to President John F. Kennedy. I know your son is a freedom rider. He's in prison right now in Birmingham with Martin Luther King. 
You, uh, you know how he is, sir? I'm guessing he's pretty beat up. But based on his record, he must be used to it. Yes, sir. We love you, Oh, that's it. You know, I never understood what you all really went through until I saw that. My brother says these kids have uh, changed his heart. They've changed mine, too. Danny Strong, we all know our basic history of the presidents. You more than most, especially for the big projects that you've done prior with Recount and Game Change. But now you have to really go back and dig deep. How? What's the learning process for you about uh, Dwight Eisenhower as played by Robin Williams, John F. Kennedy, Lee Schreiber playing Lyndon Johnson, Alan Rickman playing Ronald Reagan? How much are you learning and how are you learning about the way these people approached the civil rights issue? Well, the learning curve is immense. It's just a tremendous amount of research, but luckily these these presidencies, these administrations are extremely well documented. And one of the best sources are memoirs from people who worked in the administration. You get facts and you get knowledge and you get tidbits that, that you may not get in other places. So the, the amount of research that was involved in constructing those sequences was, was overwhelming. Is your process to hive yourself off with a bunch of screens and a very high fast internet connection or are you out with your sleeves rolled up and talking to people all the above all the above it goes from everything it goes from uh reading the books myself taking notes from uh watching documentaries before every before i get to each sequence of each presidency i watched the pbs american experience documentary Love that series yeah, the on... most amazing re- archive of of teaching there is the yeah. American experience. No, it was great. So I would watch the American experience on each president the night before I would begin that era of the script. And what it did was it not only gave you knowledge, but then you can hear the people, the, the president speak and you can kind of get their voices in your head. And so that was extremely helpful. This is the first time um, I'd ever hired a researcher. So I hired a researcher to find information for me. So it was, uh, it, it, was, it was a big all of the above in first-person interviews. I interviewed 25 people through the course of the project, many former, like I said, White House butlers, ushers, engineers, and uh, grandchildren of uh, presidents. So it's, it's really wherever I can find something that can be a kernel for a scene, I'll take it. I want to talk about that because on one hand, we are... Uh, exposed to so much fact about the 44 men who've uh, served as president of the United States, but so much of your film, Lee Daniels the Butler, takes place in a home in northwest Washington, D.C., with which you have very little apparent affinity. I want to hear a little bit from the dinner scene. What was the name of that movie, honey? In the Heat of the Night. In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier is a white man's fantasy of what he wants us to be. What are you talking about? He just won the Academy Award. He's breaking down barriers for all of us. By being white. By acting white. Sidney Porter is nothing but a rich Uncle Tom. Look at you. You're all puffed up. Your hat on your head. Coming in here, saying whatever you want. You need to go. What? Get the hell out of my house! What are you no, doing? No, no, Get no, on no. out! I'm sorry, Mr. Butler. I didn't mean to make fun of your hero. 
everything you are and everything you have because of that butler. Danny Strong, you've said that a lot of the inspiration for the part of the film that really deals with fathers and sons comes from an amalgamation of many father-son relationships that you know of, including your own. What's the, the root there? As far as how does it tie into my own relationship? Yeah, well, you know, my father is um, is a product of the 1950s, and he's very much of a 1950s mindset, and there's a very big generational split between me and him. And he's a very nice man, but we are... Uh, we're just a very, very different generations, and that's what this story is. That's what this movie is. It's a father-son where they are part of two different generations, and I've, I've knew, I knew that before I started writing it because I've lived it myself. So part of the inspiration for the Lewis Cecil relationship, which is the spine, the heart of the movie, is my own relationship with my father. And there's a, a line in the movie where Cecil says, you know, sometimes we're just living in two different worlds. I feel like we don't understand each other. I, that's me. <laughs> that's me talking about my relationship with my dad, and I don't know if my dad feels that way about me or not. Um, and like I said, we, we have a, a very nice relationship, but it's, it's certainly there's a, a massive generational split uh, between us. And on one hand, father-son relationships are universal. On the other hand, the butler deals with the relationship in a particular kind of African-American household. Mm -hmm. What informed your ability to write that kind of dialogue and get into that kind of a head? Yeah, the same process that I use on every project I've ever worked on. It's a lot of research. You do a lot of interviews, and you just try and get yourself in the mindset of the characters as much as you can. I've been asked about this quite a bit on this project, but I wrote the movie Game Change, in which I wrote a whole movie with Sarah Palin as a main character, and I'm not a woman and I'm not the governor of Alaska, um, in many ways I have much more in common with the White House butler than I do with Sarah Palin. Uh, in fact, in every way. I have more in common <laughs> with, with Cecil Gaines than I do with Sarah Palin. But it doesn't matter. You know, I'm a, I'm a professional screenwriter, so it's my job to write characters of any race, any gender, any nationality, in any situation. And the way I do it is it's all research-based. I would say that in the case of this project, I also had a secret weapon which was the great Lee Daniels. So Lee uh, is an African-American male who lived, has parents from this generation, from this era, and he had so many ideas to add a layer of authenticity and to find uh, even more depth within the characters than I was able to bring, and we had a really wonderful collaboration. I worked on the script for a year before he came on board, and then after he came on board, we worked on the script together off and on for the last three years. And in fact, the last piece of writing I did on the movie was eight weeks ago when I rewrote the entire voiceover track for the film. So it's, it's the process never ends, and, and uh, Lee was the perfect director for it, and we just had a, just a wonderful collaboration. It was an honor to work with him. Talking about some of your other works, um, I want to go back to the, the, where Danny Strong first sort of hit the headlines in, in the, uh, in the, playbook crowd, and that was with um, the story of the recount. And I want to hear a little bit of the uh, of what happens when uh, Ron Klain is get is called by uh, Ron Fournier in the middle of the night and told to get out of bed because uh, the election is still winnable for Vice President Gore. The Associated Press has different numbers than the networks. What are you talking about? The networks have all called it. Gore conceded he's on his way to the plaza right now. Listen, all I'm saying is the oldest news organization in the country has not yet called this election. We still believe Florida's too close to call. I don't understand what the hell you guys are doing. What is it? I'll call you back, Ron. 
Oh, it's going to be a litigation nightmare. Every lawyer from New York to Havana is going to be waving their briefcases up and down on the streets of Florida. I'm telling you, they're going to be falling out of the sky. Can you get back to the airport? Yeah, I can be there in an hour. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Secretary. This is everyone. Five lawyers and Joe Olba. Tell Austin I want operatives, PR, and volunteers down here immediately. Got it. They have Jesse Jackson down there in Palm Beach holding hands with those old Jewish folks screaming, count all the votes. Who the hell is going to argue with that? Danny Strong, that's Jim Baker coming into Tallahassee. We also heard, I think, Kevin Spacey as Ron Klain, who's been a guest on this show. Um, your filmography does not get very political until Recount, unless I'm missing something. How did you get pegged for that screenplay and get yourself into the political mindset, which has now become such a, a, a fruitful vein for you? Yeah, well, as a writer before Recount, there was no filmography. I never sold a project before as a writer. I'd been writing scripts. I'd been writing high-concept comedies, uh, like Jim Carrey-esque comedies, like Wire Wire and Bruce Almighty, because those were the movies that were big when I first started writing. And, uh, and I didn't have much success. And uh, I got depressed after several years of writing comedies that no one wanted to buy. So I told myself I wasn't going to write another movie until it was something I would actually go see. Sort of a big kind of breakthrough moment for me. And then I went and saw this play called Stuff Happens at the Mark Taper Forum in L.A., which was about the buildup to the Iraq War. It was David Hare's riveting play. And when I walked out of the theater, I said, that's it. That's what I'm supposed to be writing. I'm supposed to be writing modern-day, current, political, hotbed-type stuff. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I was a stage actor for so many years. I spent 10 years always in a play, and there's so much political content in theater seems to be a part of many, many different plays that I would work on, and I think that's just ultimately what interests me. Um, I also followed politics really closely. So then right after I made that declaration that this is what I'm supposed to do, as I was literally walking out of the theater, the idea for the Florida recount popped into my head. was, well, what about the Florida recount? Maybe I could do something like Stuff Happens, but with the Florida recount, I started researching it and got more sucked into the story and then came up with a 30-minute pitch which, by the way, for all you screenwriters, budding screenwriters out there, that is way too long for a pitch. <laughs> Most studio execs can't pay attention for more than 10 minutes. Who would pay attention to you at HBO? Who, who gave you the nod? Well, I got so lucky that they bought it. It was a real Christmas miracle. At the time, it was Carrie Putnam and then, and then my beloved Jenny Sherwood, who's still there, and Carrie's gone. And I'm so grateful for the two of them for buying the pitch. And Colin Callender, who was the head, ultimately had to make the decision at the time. And to this day, I still can't believe they bought that pitch from me because I'd never sold anything before. And I didn't even have a sample that could show I could write this kind of movie. All I had were these broad comedy samples. And I remember asking Jenny Sherwood a few years ago, why did you buy that pitch? And she just said it was a calculated gamble. Amazing. Yeah, we thought the, they thought the pitch was great and they loved my passion for it. They didn't know if I could do it. But they thought, yeah, we'll just gamble and we'll just see what happens. And I was very, very cheap <laughs> as a writer. Um, so it was it was something they took a risk on. And then I turned the script in. And then six weeks later, we had a green light with Sidney Pollack attached to direct. So the whole thing just went off to the races right when that happened. And then poor Sidney got sick and had to drop out. And then Jay Roach literally took over 
the day after Sidney Pollock dropped out. And I'll never forgive Jay Roach for casting uh, David Morehouse as the squat little fat guy rather than, you know, the tall well, good you, friend you, that I have. you should get over it. It's okay. <laughs> um, the, you know, the whole thing with that, too, was it was it, it, this is sort of a, a lesson in filmmaking, right? Which is it's a very limited sequence. It's a 90 second sequence. Yeah. And we had guys that look like David Morehouse come in and audition. And then we had the guy who came in and audition who got the part. And it was infinitely more emotional and powerful with this actor than with a hulking actor that looked more like David Morehouse. You were just more rooting for this guy. And granted, if David Morehouse had been a major character in the movie that where he was in the movie for 30 minutes, then it, I think it, it might have been a mistake. But for the sake of that 30-second sequence, um, it was absolutely made it a much better sequence for the movie. And I remember... I uh, emailed uh, David Morehouse and I apologized to him because I'm like, hey, look, this guy doesn't look anything like you, but for the sake of casting, and he really did give the best audition. It was just a wonderful audition. And uh, David Morehouse emailed me back and said, don't worry about it. I totally understand and sent the most lovely email. And then about two years ago, I read an article with him where he was furious about it. <laughs> so I think it's been sitting with him, but I think only... David's okay. Is he okay now? Yeah. Did he get over it? Look, okay, he's good. president of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, he's I think he's doing fine. So. Uh, so then there was Act Two, uh, and it was when uh, you when HBO called again with Mark and John's book Game Change. Just hear a little bit of it. We're down by fifteen. If his convention speech is as good as that, it'll be better. Then we'll be trailing by twenty going into St. Paul. It's an uphill battle, John. Well, as Chairman Mao was fond of saying, it's always darkest before it's completely black. Senator, it always concerns me when you quote Chairman Mao. This guy is raising money like he's some sort of a human ATM machine. John, if there ever was a time to run a Reverend Wright ad, this is that time. Absolutely not. I agree. There's footage of his own Reverend saying, God damn America, it's the single best weapon we've got. I want to run a fucking campaign that my kids can be proud of, and that precludes attacking a black Reverend. That's Ed Harris as John McCain quoting Chairman Mao. Uh, Danny Strong, as I let you go to the rest of your publicity tour, uh, I know John and Mark are buried deep somewhere finishing up Game Change 2. Are you on tap for the sequel? Uh, well, I, Jay Roach and I are both attached to it. I think we're both waiting to read the book and because I have no idea... I have no idea what the what the movie would be inside that book. I had no idea that the two chapters of Sarah Palin and Game Change, that that would be the best movie until I read the book. And I thought, oh, wow, that's that's the movie. And uh, Jay Roach always had a vision for this Sarah Palin movie and had been trying to get me to do it for two years before I read the book. And I kept saying no, because I, I just said, I don't care about Sarah Palin. I, I don't I don't know how to do that movie. And then when I read the book, I thought that's 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 an amazing story in American history. And I think what Jay and I are both hoping to find is, you know, is there that great movie? I know I would love to do it, and I would love to do a third one of these election HBO movies. I love HBO. I love Jay Roach, and I'm sure the book's going to be fantastic. I think the big question is, and a number one bestseller, in case Mark Halpern is listening. Um, but what I, what I, what's most important to me is, and to Jay Roach is, okay, well, is there a great movie there? Because we're really proud of Recount, we're really proud of Game Change, and we don't want to make another one of these movies just to make it. We want it to be at the same level as those two movies. And if it's not, then that's okay. But if there's a movie there, I think, yeah, we're going to be all over it. Danny Siegel, uh, author, uh, sorry, let me pick it up. Mm. 
Danny Strong, screenwriter of Lee Daniels' The Butler. And also, hopefully, in the final season of Mad Men, I'd love to see Don Draper and Danny Siegel somewhere in Laguna Beach just hanging out, <laughs> surfs up, and that final scene in which we don't know of Draper's f- fate, he just sort of wades out into the surf, and we don't know if he gets hit by the big one. I think I think that's genius. And then Danny Siegel takes his uh, sip of uh, martini and turns to the girl that Don Draper was with, and he said, Hi, my name is Danny Siegel. And then we know he's the next Don Draper. We just figured it out. We Matthew Weiner, we got it. We're we got wrapped. It. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank Danny. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. <laughs>